if you don't have those fundamentals organized in your head and in your business, your ship is a real weak ship. It's put together with duct tape and Gorilla Glue and styrofoam, and it may be okay in smooth waters, but it will not survive a storm. Welcome to The Lensetter Show, the show that blends the art of sales, the science of success, and the strategies of real experts in the mortgage and sales industries to help you grow your client base, increase your revenue, and get in control of your life. I'm your host, Preston Schmidley. Kick back, enjoy the episode, and don't forget to subscribe. What's going on, friends? Welcome to this episode of The Lensetter Show, where we help mortgage and sales professionals uh, all alike. And I'm very excited because on this episode, we have a very, very special guest, somebody who's been a very long time mentor to me on this journey, uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, but he has been. And it's cool because in recent times, uh, we've been able to spend more actual time together like this. Uh, and I get to learn directly from him and, and there's a wealth of knowledge there. So I want to introduce uh, somebody I have a huge amount of respect for, Dan S. Kennedy. Dan, thank you for being on the Lensetter Show today. Happy to be with you. Yeah. So um, as you know, our primary audience uh, is is mortgage brokers, originators as a whole. Uh, and, and uh, you know, obviously we speak to salespeople because it's there's a lot to be garnished from this. And really the difference between a mortgage and a widget really isn't. I mean, you know, there's some nuances, but a sale is a sale. Right. So um, it's been an interesting time in the last year, uh, especially if you zoom out two years and look at that time horizon, um, 2020, 2021. Um, you know, you, you, if you fogged a mirror, you made money in mortgage, right? And then, tw- yeah. you know, and money was free, by the way. I, you know, 2.875 on a house note, it's like, we're printing. So now we're in 2022, uh, uh, 2023. And comparatively, the market is, you know, just it's people don't know how to navigate it. People who've done this for 30 years are going, I've never seen this before. Uh, which is interesting to me, uh, just knowing the history of mortgage. But um, I'd be curious about your take and and kind of setting yourself up for success, uh, uh, knowing that, like most businesses, mortgage is cyclical. Um, you know, I'm big on creating a, a moat around a business and preparing for uh, um, uh, hard times and, and, and recession and all that. Because I've always said what applies in a recession rep- applies in a boom, but it's not the other way around. Um, I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. Well, you just hit, you sort of zoomed over a, 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 as a small point, uh, something that I think is a very big point. Okay. And, and it's a failure of the overwhelming majority of people in just about every business. So no mortgage industry professional owns the guilt on this sin. It's almost a universal sin. And it is ignorance about history and ignorance about the history of your particular field. Mm. 90% of the people um, that I encounter uh, one-on-one, whether via consulting or all the way down to, you know, a quick conversation with an audience member at an event, if I ask them three questions about the history of their industry, they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they know what happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that leaves them unnecessarily vulnerable to reinventing wheels 
that actually just need to be gotten out of a closet from time to time and dusted off. Mm-hmm. So there's really no set of circumstances that A, haven't already occurred, and B, that somebody didn't figure out how to thrive and prosper in while others fell to the ground at mass weeping and bleeding. That's the history of business and economics in America and in the right, world. Right. So, and of course, I, when I came up in business, we were in the Carter and Carter aftermath recession. So we had uh, it, prime interest rates of, of 12 to 16 to 18%. People were paying 33% on their credit cards. If you could get a 12% mortgage, you were like golden. Right. And, and we also had double digit unemployment and double digit inflation worse than the inflation we've got now Mm -hmm. and uh, people that don't know that and don't have any understanding of how in any given field businesses won or lost in those circumstances are having to invent when really all you need to do is find it and implement, right? And so it's a big irritant to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) really, when I sit in a room with people uh, who are like a marketing team assigned to this project, and I stump them all with something that is historical but relevant <laughs> to the current set of circumstances that we're in mm. and there have been periods in your industry and in others when money has run uphill sure right? when you know a monkey throwing feces at the wall got rich um there have also been periods of time where liquidity is tightened up to the point that you might as well have taken the word out of the dictionary, um, which pretty much was the years I just described. Right. Uh, And every dollar anybody was spending, except for the really, really, really rich, uh, was a hard dollar to pry out of their fingers. And yet, people got rich in every category of business you can name under those circumstances. So there's a model in in my renegade millionaire system, I talk a lot about modeling, which is not finding one person to copy. Like, oh, I'm an investment guy, so I'll dress like Warren Buffett, I'll talk like Warren Buffett, I'll believe like what, no. But you probably find five or six things from Warren Buffett that belong in your model. You probably find five or six things over here that belong in your model. So modeling is very important. And the first thing I do, uh, if I am stuck in a learning curve environment, um, which I try to stay out of, but I write copy and consult in a lot of different fields. So every once in a while, I find myself 
where I don't have my own set of historical reference. One of the first things I do is go get my history. Mm. Uh, because in many cases, <clears throat> I don't need to reinvent, I don't need to invent anything. I get right. to take it out of closets, brush dust off of it, stitch it together. And the client thinks, you know, I'm Thomas Edison and I just invented <laughs> light, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and what he doesn't know doesn't hurt him. So the, it's a big bugaboo for me, right? The other thing is that under all fluctuations, booms and busts and uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the rise of tech, and under all sort of macro um, influences, there are certain fundamentals of success that do not change. And that's always a good place to start is to make sure that you've got the fundamentals right mm. and uh, jim Rohn always said if somebody invites you to their factory to see where they are making antiques uh you want to watch your wallet um and 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 you want to focus on fundamentals so you know there 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 are certain fundamentals like you said ultimately a sale is a sale right right and there are fundamentals, for example, of how people get to the point of trust, how people get to a point of preference. I want to do business with you rather than anybody else that con counters and contradicts commoditization uh, and price fee rate only uh, a decision making. Those fundamentals don't change. And so you, if you master those fundamentals, you've like built yourself a really sturdy ship with which to sail the roughest of waters. If you don't have those fundamentals organized in your head and in your business, your ship is a real weak ship. It's put together with duct tape and Gorilla Glue and styrofoam and it may be okay in smooth waters but it will not survive a storm i, I heard you um through one of your various trainings through the years uh, i've heard you describe um some it's kind of akin to this is that most people they think they run a business but what they really have is a series of disconnected income events um, you know, and, and so there's, there's a lack of structure there on how they continue to get the next meal, um, you know, which obviously ties into, as you call it, uh, present bank and future bank and building systems that help you get both right. So, um, you, you, you mentioned there, uh, something I, I think is worth diving into as far as, you know, going through the fundamentals, because I'm big on fundamentals. I mean, you know, there's, there's a few things that are timeless, whether it's direct mail, whether it's Facebook, TikTok, you know, it could be e emails. I, I don't really care. Um, there's things that really universally apply and maybe require some modification, but there's some universal truths to this. Um, what are some of the things that you've kind of observed that help somebody, you know, you had kind of created, mentioned creating a sturdy ship there. What are some of the things that you feel um, kind of add up to that end result for, for a business well, owner? So a couple of things. So one, uh, which you identified, is that 
a lot of people think they're they own a business and actually a job owns them mm-hmm. and so maybe with bigger zeros as they quote quote succeed they are still a paycheck to paycheck person just mm-hmm. like joe lunch bucket okay they need next week's deal to pay last week's bills and they're that way the 20th year they're in business uh, in, in the industry that they're in just as they were the second year now they may have three houses instead of one um, they may be on the third wife they may be on a second boat but in reality they're paycheck to paycheck right whereas owning a real business you have a business that is working for you and it is not entirely dependent on your manual labor okay so people that come from the sales side it's hard for them to shake sales culture and sales culture is about hunt kill eat okay and and it it evolved from a time when there were no refrigerators Mm -hmm. so you hunted today you killed today you ate today and you went back out tomorrow and hunted and killed to eat. And here we are in 2023, and most salespeople still behave the same way, even though we have refrigerators. And and it's hard to shake them from that culture, right? Whereas a marketing culture is really a business. And so marketing preceding and seamlessly leading into the selling allows you to have media working for you instead of just manual labor. So now let's leap to something specific. Okay? How much of an authority you are perceived to be by your prospect by the time you have a sales conversation with them. So your doctor, for most people, their answer to that is a really good answer. They have what's called the power to prescribe. They don't really have to sell much. They say to you, hey, here's the x-ray. Here's the MRI. Um, I'm your doctor. And I'm telling you, you need to take this pill or you need to lay down on this gurney and we need to get you in right away and you take off your clothes and you get down on the gurney okay they have the power to prescribe at the opposite end of that scale is poor salesman who is viewed essentially as just another salesman he has almost no authority and so every inch is heavy lifting so if you change that dynamic with marketing and specifically with what I call info first marketing, so that you create authority, you automatically create preference. If you're the number one authority on X, and and you've presented yourself that way to me, um, you have more power to prescribe to me about X 
and less need to act like a salesman with me about X. And now you have decommoditization, mm -hmm. which is that rates, price, fee, etc. Now, instead of being the number one thing on the decision matrix is maybe number four or number six or number eight, or maybe it's erased altogether. Right? And almost anybody can make this change in any business they're in. Um, it's not instant. Um, and it's not simple, but it is easy. So it's complicated, but it's still easy. All of its secrets are pretty visible. Um, you kind of know what makes an expert. You know what makes an expert specialist. You know what makes an authority. You know what makes a celebrity. Uh, and so you can take that and remake you and your business to be that. And now you've solved a whole host of problems all at once. You, you talked about something there that I think is worth diving into a little bit. So one of the things that I see a lot is that there's kind of what I would call almost a failure to launch for people. There's a fear about becoming the specialist, right? Because I, when I talk to a, a, an originator, for instance, and I go, well, what do you, you know, what, what makes you special? You know, it's like, well, I, I, I can get low rates. I can get, you know, I got fast turnaround time. I got, it's like, well, that's the, that's the, that's the cost of admission. Like that's the that's expectation right. just to right, do business. That's right. That's the yeah. ante to get in the game. Right. And That's so, all it is. you know, in, in and in that arena, and, and I often, uh, uh, you know, warn our, our, our members about this is in that arena. It's like if you're worried about, you know, those kind of things that are commoditized, there are juggernauts that are heavily dependent on the Internet have, and have built these digital systems based on large budgets, Super Bowl ads they have the brand recognition to dominate that space and they can buy all the impressions and squeeze you out. Right. And so my, my question for you is for, uh, uh, for an originator who might be going, you know, Dan, um, this all sounds great, but I, I can help everybody. I help everybody and I don't want to turn business away. Um, how can somebody like that decommoditize themselves in a generally otherwise commoditized market? Well, so, uh, 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 by the way, most markets are generally commoditized. So okay. what your loan officer feels is a unique problem uh, to him is not a unique problem at all. Right? There are, there's over 500 amusement parks in the country. Um, and the only one that's, that's decommoditized is Disney. Mm -hmm. right? um, uh, and, and, anybody universal studios could copy them they're just that smart enough so the first answer to your question is decision so you've the the sales professional in your case the loan officer has got to commit to the concept that i don't want to be a third class citizen in this industry commoditized uh, at enormous disadvantage to, as you say, for example, really big entities who actually, they're not even working with real money. 
So you're doing your advertising and your marketing and your selling with real money. And you need to get real money back in order to pay Ray a real bills. They're using Wall Street investors money. Mm. Uh, they're they're playing a game with fake money. Right. And they can play the game a long time with fake money uh, losing. Yeah. And still dominating a space. So going up against them head to head with vague claims of I'm faster, I care more, um, uh, we give better service. See, that that's a losing proposition. And if you, if you don't know what to do, then you start by looking around at everybody else is doing, and you know that you shouldn't be doing that, okay? Because the overwhelming majority of people in every category of business, including yours, okay, are earning average or below average incomes. Um, every industry has the same prosperity pyramid. Mm. There's 1% at the very top. There's 4% doing very well. There's 15% doing good. There's 40% doing just good enough not to quit. And there's 40% starving. So if you add the 40 and the 40, eight out of 10, whatever they're doing is wrong. So if you didn't know what to do, you just make a list of what the eight out of 10 are doing and start by not doing that. But you have to be conceptually committed to this before you will have the imagination and the and the brass balls to then do what is necessary to separate yourself from the crowd at the bottom one of those options there are options but one is specialization or perceived specialization because people, and the more affluent they are, the more this is true, people intuitively, instinctively, and consciously want who or what is specifically for them. They don't want what is for anybody and everybody. Because by the very nature of that, it says to me, it can't really be great for me if it's also great for my idiot brother-in-law <laughs> at the other end of the city who barely makes a living. Say, it can't be great for both of us. So maybe it's great for neither one of us, mm. but I want something and someone that is great for me, right? So you've got to sacrifice to specialize. There's no doubt about it. Okay? When the big, um, God, who are they? When the big um, second mortgage company that specializes in veterans uh, goes on TV. Uh, and Is it Veterans uh, United? The, USA, USA. USA, thank you. Veterans, oh, yeah, United. Yeah. Veterans United probably dominates the space online. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and USAA uh, uh, pretty much dominates it 
on broadcast. Mm-hmm. Okay? Every ad they run, everything they say, says, if you're not a veteran, don't call us. They sacrifice them. They have a, had a whole campaign last year of Gronk from the New England Patriots okay, uh, trying to weasel his way in to get to becoming a USAA member and being able to buy insurance from them and get mortgages from them and constantly being turned down because, sorry, but you're not a veteran. Right. right? So they are sacrificing tons of eyeballs <coughs> to get the reaction from a percentage of the eyeballs of, wait a minute, hey, hey, hey those guys are for me. Mm. They're talking only <clears throat> to me. They're, well, and that sale, that, that sale for the person that you are specializing in now becomes infinitely easier. Oh, it's profoundly easier. So when you become known for something in a marketplace, uh, I want to find a list here. I'm sorry, but I'm just going to look for it. Um, here we here we go. Um, so, um, as a freelance professional copywriter, one of the things I got known for um, as a specialist was information marketing, and inside that, filling seminar seats. So the talk of that town was and is nobody's better at putting butts in seats than Kennedy. So now when somebody comes to me and says, I need to put butts in seats, uh, will you do that for me? That sale is like not a sale. It's a prescription. Well, I could. Here's what you need to do. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what that's going to cost. Boom, 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 boom. And do you want to pay it all up front or do you want to pay it thirds? End of sale. I just did the whole sale. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because there was predetermined desire on their part to get me if they could because I was perceived as a specialist for them. Now, I also have the right copy for skincare and, you know, but, but that's not the point. So specialization is one of these pathways. Another one that's very powerful is being the provider who fixes what people hate in a business, in a service category, in a profession. So like I have a client that works with small law firms. He's what you are to loan officers. He is to small law firms. And one of the things all clients hate about their lawyers is they never, the lawyer never calls and gives them an update on what the hell's going on with their case. And they let it go and let it go and let it go while their frustration builds up and up and up until they finally call to get an update and they hate it. Mm-hmm. So he teaches the law firm to fix that. Number one, operationally fix it. So everybody gets an update 
every week on their case, right? Then another path of my six big ones for this is performance guarantees. So now you can't guarantee the legal work, but you could guarantee this. So yeah, now he's able he's now he's able to take what he fixed that they hate and turn it in to a performance guarantee. We guarantee you will get an update every week on your case or we'll refund your fee. It's a solid offer. Right? It's great, right? Yeah. Client and it, goes. And it costs them damn near nothing. It, it, well, it, it's actually doing what you should be doing anyway. <laughs> right? right? I mean, right. Um, uh, there's another pathway is which is kind of like specialization, it's great affinity. Okay? So people shouldn't have a buying preference with professionals because of this. People shouldn't get to trust this way, but they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big points I make uh, in my uh, No BS Trust-Based Marketing book is people get to trust for all the wrong reasons. That's why people lose all their money to Bernie Madoff and FTX. Okay, they get to trust for wrong reasons. So affinity is a great one. Okay, uh, can be ethnicity, can be the the church you go to. It can be that you were a veteran, Dad was a veteran. It's so. Uh, so I'll give you a precise example. Uh, we have a longtime member, uh, James Lang. And Jim is a, a financial advisor and money under management guy in Pennsylvania, okay? meaning he sells financial products, annuities, insurance, etc. And he has a money under management part of his business where you just hand it to him and he manages your portfolio. Um, I don't know how many there are in Pennsylvania, but, you know, there's a slew of them. Okay? Mm-hmm. And rate of return if you don't head it off is a big topic of conversation in that business what rate of annual return can you get me on what does this annuity pay oh i'll go google annuities and i'll see what they all pay etc right so all these problems exist uh in that business well he has a fortunate affinity uh, which I beat him up to capitalize on. His mom's a college professor. His dad's a college professor. His brother's a college professor. Uh, his cousin's a college professor. Uh, all in the greater Pittsburgh area, right? And he's professorial. He comes across that way, probably because he's been around them, right? his whole life. So I said, why are you screwing around putting the general public into your marketing funnel? The same general public everybody else is putting into a marketing funnel. And then basically you're all saying the same stuff to them because you don't have much choice, right? Uh, uh, When you could just put college professors into a funnel just for college professors only talk 
college professor talk. Mm-hmm. Use the fact that your whole family is made up of college professors, which is what motivated you to figure out how to do the best things you could possibly do with money for college professors for their retirement. Write a book only for college professors about et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. His free workshops, financial advisors all run the come to the evening workshop, get the free chicken dinner. And, you know, they all do that. His free workshops are only for college professors. That's great. Yeah. Okay. His business is five times what it was, what it was generic. Okay. Uh, uh, higher average investable, therefore higher value per client, much less competitive questions. They almost don't exist, right? And I can tell you story after story after story of the same model. So affinity is a path. Even well, process is a path. It's it's interesting, you, you and you had brought this up for a separate point, but you had mentioned USA and, and I mentioned Veterans United. Uh, uh, in in the VA market, I see this a lot for uh, clients that specialize in VA. They they get upset when they see a veteran that's you know maybe our our client or our member is the is the second opinion, right? But then so this person already has a a kind of a rape from USA or Veterans United, and they just go on a rant about how unethical it is on how much they're charging, and it's like we could debate the ethics back and forth all day. However, that's case like that's a that's a perfect example of price elasticity based on affinity well that's exactly that's exactly correct and yeah you can you can debate um someone else's pricing structure and whether it is fair or not or gouging or not or transparent or not and i guess that's an interesting backyard deck debate to have on your <laughs> to have on your day off on memorial the barbecue right yeah but but um it gets in your way first of all of learning and understanding anything that's useful to you right and second of all uh it doesn't help you to be angry at them you know one of my business questions is um, um, it's like a sign on the wall is where's the profit in that? Because as much as possible, I'd rather not waste my time and my energy on things, on people, in places where there's no profit. Sure. All, all the way to, I like to watch television, but I like to watch TV that I might get something from in addition to entertainment that I could use rather than just entertainment, right? So I, I understand people being mad about it. And by the way, that exists in every business too, okay? So if you go into a room full of psychologists, uh, you only need to say, Dr. Phil, and everybody, <laughs> I'm serious, and everybody you. will set themselves on fire telling you what a fat fraud he is and uh, they're a better psychologist than he is. And, 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 right. Or if you don't want to say Dr. Phil, say Tony Robbins. You'll get the same reaction. Sure, sure, the room sure. will set themselves on fire. Okay? And it exists in every business. 
locally, regionally, and nationally, right? But mm -hmm. if you're getting your ass kicked by somebody like that, the first thing to do is figure out why right. and, and figure out what you can learn from that that you can apply. All these years later, if you go in a room full of magicians and you say Houdini, they all want to tell you that he really wasn't a very good magician. Okay. But so what? Right? Why not, why not look at what he did other than being a mediocre magician to make himself the number one magician and the richest magician in the history of magic? Why not look at that, right? Mm -hmm. And say, okay, maybe tweaked for different ethics or different, I can use that. <clears throat> Well, and it's, it, you know, it's the, the ethical part of that's interesting because it's like you could still learn plenty from USAA. I mean, there's there's a master class in marketing there alone. Veterans United is an, a, another great example. It's like you could completely use and leverage the same strategies they're doing. And then that affords you the privilege of price elasticity should you choose to raise rates. Doesn't mean you have to, but it's a nice thing to be afforded, right? It's like it's a nice place to have that leverage and control to be able to should you want to. Yeah, so, well, yeah, and look, value, so you have to get past, in order to have fee elasticity in a profession, you have to get past the idea that all the value is just in the deliverable. Because the value for the consumer, for the customer, it's much more complicated than that. Okay. Um, so customers um, want to feel good about the decision that they've made, to feel secure about a decision they've made, to feel affinity with a group or an organization that shares their values uh, or in some way supports um something they support um they etc 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 so that value to them is worth money so any of us who charge premium fees for our expertise and our time and our care on top of the core deliverable that we provide are not you are not ripping people off we are delivering a package of value that is important to our customer or our client or our patient so like uh 40 percent of um of necessary uh drug prescriptions um uh, don't get filled roughly half of that is money but half of that is not it's that those doctors didn't have enough authority with their patients that they wow. went and filled them right? one answer to that is to be a different a doctor that's difficult to get to uh and difficult to convince to be your doctor 
and who charges more money. So in every business, there's a there's a price fee, you know, sort of range, right? I mean, purely on a utilitarian basis, if everybody bought and everything was sold based on its utility basis, its actual deliverable, right? then the only car on the road would be a Kia. Right? Well, I'm serious. There'd right. be no justification to have any other car, right? And uh, everybody would shop at Walmart, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Just, so you're saying essentially stripping away the perceived status and, and all of those ancillary things. It's If it was just the bear, this is, it's, it gets me from A to B, the yeah. only relevant vehicle is the cheapest. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and so that's why, that's why like the internet has is such a um a a great god that giveth and a great god that taketh away uh because on the taketh away side it enormously facilitates commoditization Mm -hmm. right and it forces everybody to get smarter if they're going to prosper just Mm -hmm. think of being a retailer you think you got problems I mean, seriously, let's say you got a Williams Sonoma store that sells all sorts of stuff for the kitchen and for cooks. Well, people go in, they get something demoed to them. They're interested in it. Sonoma Williams made them interested in it, educated them about it, and then they take their phone and they photograph the barcode on the box and up comes five different places you could buy it at five different prices. Nine out of 10 times, Amazon is the winner. Okay? Right. So, so, so think about that cheery position to be in. Hmm. Right. So you're delivering all the extra value. And then the damn consumer is running off and buying it from it's like having a watch store and getting every got you getting you interested in a real expensive watch and then you run and buy it from a guy in the alley right that's that's now the retail problem of the industry mm-hmm. and some figure out what to do about that williams and sonoma has uh others do not figure out what to do about that and 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 there's a there's a technical business term for them gone <laughs> so, so um i love it so there was a uh, um there was something there that i that i think is important to orbit around because i'm big i i always tell i always tell our clients it's kind of a two levels of thought here that um, people seek price in the absence of value and value is a concept predicated on need um i would be curious about you know you and I understand this stuff because we've, I mean, you much longer than me, but we've been doing this for some time. And so obviously we think about this in everything we do. Um, but like, to, to- so I go, I, so I go a little broader than you. Okay. Okay. People seek price in the absence of um, any, any other information, mm-hmm. okay? mostly regarding value. Okay. But people seek value 
about needs and wants. And the truth is, people are always more motivated to pick a provider, to buy a product, and to pay a price based on wants, even than needs. So in a given transaction, their needs have to be met, but there has to be a reason for preference. There has to be a reason why they would rather have you meet that need for them than anybody else meet that need for them. But if you give no other argument, of course, then you're an idiot if you don't buy by price. Right, right. Right? How dumb are you? Well, that's all you got to go by anyways. I mean, you're if there's yeah, three blue, if there even if you decide you want a navy blue blue blazer, which one did I do? Guilt you into going and putting a jacket on? Is you did actually. I, you you did I guilt did. me into putting a blazer yeah. on, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> um uh, if um if you decide you want a navy blue blazer, like you gotta go to a funeral or your wife is dragging you to some cocktail party where she works, which I think is probably the only way you would buy a navy blue blazer. But but if you decide you want one and you go to the mall and there's three of them in the window and they look identical to you and one's 199, the other one's 399 and the last one's 899 and you go inside and the salesperson does not differentiate for you why that is, right? You're a moron if you don't buy the cheapest one, right? Or what most people would do in that situation is they would say to themselves, nobody's helping me here, but there's probably something wrong with the cheapest one. Mm. There probably isn't that much difference between the other two. I'll buy the middle. Mm -hmm. Left to their own devices. Create their own reasons. Yeah. So... You know, so like one of the one of the most expensive off the rack suits I ever bought. I usually buy have made for me, but so I'm in Vegas, yes, and and we're in the um, forum shops, buddy of mine and I, and there was it's gone now. There was a Bernini store there, um, and um, a couple of real nice suits in the window. Double breasted was in at the time, the stripe on stripe same color so black stripe on stripe silver stripe on stripe so i say just for kicks and giggles i want to go in and see you know what the price tag is on that damn thing and so in we go the sales guy is there and he was perfect i mean perfect yeah because he started with because i had a sport coat on my buddy had a sport coat on. We were on our way to dinner at the steakhouse. And he says, uh, you gentlemen look like professionals, like business people. Right? What do you do? That's where he starts. It's where the friend rats you out. <laughs> That's right. My friend rats me out. And he says, oh, he, he's a famous professional speaker. He speaks with all these people and Zig. You've probably heard of Zig. And, you know. yeah. and the guy now, that's where he goes. Mm -hmm. Oh, so correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Kennedy, but your status, your 
ability to grab the attention of an audience with the first impression you make in the first three minutes, your income probably has a lot to do with your appearance. Well, yeah, it, it, right. I mean, you're screwed, right? Yeah, you're in. You're locked in. Yeah, you're yeah. in, right? And I mean, down the path we went. I had no idea what the suit cost until I had it on and the tailor was out there fixing the cuffs um, uh, because it, it just didn't matter, right? right? It was irrelevant to the conversation. Now, I'm a fluid enough that it doesn't have to matter, number one. So who you're in front of, which is where marketing comes in, matters a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so like other professionals are always more likely to pay a premium fee than non-professionals because if we sell expertise we value expertise the guy that works at the ford plant may not necessarily value expertise in the same way we do right so who you're in front of matters right the selling environment matters all of that but point being i didn't even really intend to buy it let alone pay, geez, I think it was, you know, $1,800 20 years ago. I mean, it's That's a lot of money. Yeah. Well, no. well I, I remember that story too. And, and I, the thing, and just as a fellow salesperson, you know, I've, I've ran call rooms and I've been doing sales for 20 years. That's actually what got me into marketing. Um, I had a true appreciation for that story when I heard it, because I remember you even going into him talking about how because you're going to be, you know, speaking, it's going to affect the way the pockets are. And he was talking about like, you know, you're standing in front of a crowd and, and like, it had nothing to do with the fabric, the buttons, where it was sewn. It was nothing. It was, it was, it was very tailored to your experience. Um, And I thought that that I'm like, dude, this guy is wherever he's at in the world, he's making money right now. Yep. That's right. (laughs) You'll, you'll never starve if you know how to sell. Uh, but um, you'll always prosper if you know how not to have to sell. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you know, one thing I want to kind of switch gears here too. I, that that was amazing, and um, I would recommend people just pause and listen to that that last ten minutes uh, a few times. There's, there's some nuggets in there. Um, one thing that you'd mentioned that, and I've gone through your training on this guy. I don't know, maybe a dozen or more times in the last year. Uh, I'm addicted to the phenomenon. I think there's so much wisdom in it that it's, it's ridiculous. Um, You had mentioned something in in probably the first 30 minutes of the phenomenon where you talk about there's two mindsets and they really dictate the, everything that happens after that for your life. Um, I'd be curious because I see this in my own experience. You know, we help hundreds of loan officers all across the nation and I see some of both mindsets, as you could imagine, more of one than the other. And and uh, I think it would be good for our audience to hear more about this directly from you. So I think you're referring to uh, unlimited abundance or scarcity. For the most part, yeah. You you said it. You said it in a, in a little bit more poetic way in the training, uh, but that's essentially the core concept. Yeah. So. Um, um... My AV guy, Ron Sheets, and I were talking right before we started. He and his family were um, getting their eyes checked and getting new glasses last night. 
and it turns out that his insurance doesn't kick in and cover it for three more days, which they find out at checkout. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so the out of pocket then therefore is 148 bucks for the exams. And the person at the counter in the eye center is traumatized by having to tell him this. So and this is a common problem in healthcare practices. Right. Eye, foot, back, all of them. And he started like, you know, it's a shame she's, you know, got this attitude about money. I said, well, yeah, first of all, you have to understand her frame of reference. Her frame of reference is not Ron's income. Her frame of reference is not your income or my income. Her frame of reference is her income, which after taxes is probably about 450 bucks a week. So 148 out of 450 is a lot of money. It actually changes what that household's going to do next week, right? Right. And then, of course, she hasn't been trained and she hasn't been coached and she hasn't been prepared, et cetera, to, to handle this. So um, a lot of people have trouble, for example, with selling up to a more affluent clientele because they're stuck in their frame of reference, which is fundamentally about scarcity. Fundamentally, it is about limitation. The idea that there is only so much money um, and often by prejudging, I can tell by the math on the form, by the look of the house, by the whatever, that there's only so much money here. And this number is going to be, you know, prohibitive to them. Um, and, and then at the opposite of that is the much more correct idea um, that first of all, there's great abundance, particularly here in America. There's a ton of money and there's a lot of discretionary money sloshing around. Uh, we have high credit card balances right now for the population, as you know, but we also have high savings account balances for the population. As you know, they didn't spend all their COVID money on crypto. They kept some. Um, um, the um, uh, 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 So there's a, gee, there's a lot of money out there, right? Secondly, uh, a, a, a truism that a lot of sales professionals, they either never learn it or it takes it happening to them six times, eight times, 12 times, 16 times before they get it, is that people find money for what they feel they need and want, for what is important to them. And if having you versus anybody else handle this for me is important to me if it's what I want often magically I actually do have or have access to the money every direct sales guy 
or gal has a version of this story. Zig tells it with pots and pans of being in this rundown house and discovering that they barely have a functioning bathroom that needs to be remodeled and redone and so forth. And he's there pitching the $800 set of cookware in 1960-ish. And he pulls his punches. He just kind of shifts into low gear and just tries to get through, get the pots packed back up and get out of the house. Two reasons. One, he doesn't think there's any way in hell that they're going to be able to buy an $800 set of pots and pans. And number two, he feels instantly guilty about even trying to get them to buy an $800 set of pots and pans when, you know, mama's having to use the toilet with no walls around it um, out in the hallway. And so he pulls his punches and he gets out of there. And the irate man of the house comes out the front door and lays into him. Number one, you don't get to judge what we buy. Number two, if mama wants them pots and pans, mama's getting them pots and pans. We've gone three years with the bathroom the way it is. We could go another six months. So you get your butt back in here, boy. And I got $800 in in my Levi's and we're getting these pots and pans in the kitchen. So Zig has that story. Glenn Turner has it about sewing machines, selling in the home. Everybody who has ever sold direct sales in the home, encyclopedia, vacuum cleaner, etc. We all have this same story because we have all made this same mistake, right? We have imposed our value and priority system on the prospect, not let the prospect show us their value and priority system. So almost everything is then controlled, as you said, ad copy you write, the sales letter you send, the presentation you make, the expectation you have, the fee you set, almost everything you do is is governed by where you are in this mindset. Do I believe that essentially there's unlimited abundance and that people have a demonstrated behavior of getting or finding the money for what they value, want, and need? Or do I believe it's very limited, money's hard to get, it's tight, only some people have it and some people don't, Um, which, where are you on that spectrum? And almost everything else that happens 
or that you are able to make happen is rooted in that mindset. Well, it's interesting. So you 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 mentioned money specifically for this example and scarcity probably, you know, directly tied to that, uh, which I, I kind of view money as a unit of measurement for value exchange, right? It's like, it's not the only way, form of wealth, but it's a pretty good indicator, right? And so um, I, I was just thinking it back to, to the phenomenon and, and, and the way that you mentioned it in that I think it even kind of transcends money to opportunity, to potential, to, you know, education, to a lot of great things. Um, you said uh, um, somebody else doing something, you know, there's two schools of thought, somebody else doing something uh, 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 does not indicate that somebody else could do it or that I could do it, right? And that's school A, which is probably the school most people fall into, and school B is uh, proof that so, or somebody else doing something is proof that I could do that. Anybody could do that. Right. And, yep. and whichever one you cling to will determine what you do therefore. Absolutely. So there, there's a chapter that, um, uh, my regular book publisher would not put in a book. I forget which book it was. They refused to use it. And I used it in my autobiography. The title of the chapter is Michael Moore is a big fat idiot. <laughs> Um, I and, love it. And, and the chapter is exactly about this, because Michael Moore speaks to, and it is a liberal idea, it is a Democrat idea, uh, speaks to this, this, this conflict. And so Michael Moore insists that people who have made themselves rich from scratch, by whatever mechanism, whatever business they've done it in, okay, they are super freaks. And seeing them um, cannot be used as inspiration that, gee, if they can do it, why not me? And in fact, that the super freak examples are used to sell a BS American dream to the masses and convince them of pilot error so that they won't have a giant revolution and hang everybody uh, outside the castle. Now that's his position. It is not a unique position. It's a liberal Democrat position. The entire poverty industry uh, the fourth biggest industry in America, is based on that idea that most people can't. Okay? They, 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 it's an unofficial caste system. Okay? You're in poverty, you're unable to, and if you come from a bad family, if you don't know. All of that is a statistical disadvantage, right? However, these super freak examples there's a ton of them. I mean, there's a ton of them in every generation. So the other position, right, the other idea is to look at those who have made themselves rich, successful, extraordinary by any means, doesn't have to be sales, doesn't have to be business, okay? Um, 
that they have done something that you can too. Now, there's a few genetic, you know, arguments, but they're few, okay? Like um, um, the idea of me being a NBA player um, at any point, I probably lack the genetic talent to have done that. Although we don't know for sure, because I'm six foot four, if I had dedicated myself to that and to nothing else from the time I was nine, maybe, we don't know, okay? Um, uh, There's certainly football players, NFL players, in every generation of players who have been too short, uh, uh, too small, too skinny, too this, too that, who all got rings. So if you're the other guy, to their credit, the two top draft choices this year at the televised draft both said this. To their credit, they turned to the camera and they said to the young people watching this, you have to understand, if you approach this like I did, and you approach life like I have, I come from a terrible neighborhood, a bad family, all sorts of disadvantages, all kind of problems. And I taught myself discipline, success habits, etc. Maybe you can't be standing here, but you could be standing somewhere like this, right? So those are the two, right? So um, the the original premise of Think and Grow Rich, uh, written by Napoleon Hill, set out by Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie is one of the first billionaires uh, hmm. in America, made from scratch. Billionaire and, by today's standards, or was he a billionaire then? He was a billionaire then. Holy shit. Um, um, Carnegie was really the first to have and enunciate this idea that we should be able, if we can teach people the skills of making steel in the factory, we should be able to codify the skills and teach them the skills to be successful in life. Mm. And he's one of the first to really sort of believe that and set Hill on his mission of interviewing 500 of the most, which then led to the 17 laws of success published by Hill. So where you are on this has a great deal to do with everything, all your behavior beyond it, right? So when you see someone highly successful, do you say to yourself, freak, out of my range, or huh, what the hell are they doing that's different than what I'm doing, right? Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, we lived next door to a very eccentric, um, rich guy. Um, I didn't know how rich then. I still don't, but I know rich, rich. And when I realized he was rich, rich. I had a lot of questions. It's funny 
that a lot of not rich people don't have any questions. They all have opinions, but they don't have any questions. Well, it's because of this. See, their starting premise is, I can't. So why ask? What would be the point? Right? Whereas the entrepreneur's premise is, if they can do it, I can do it. I just need some information. I got the success skills. I can get my ass up in the morning. I can go to work. I can, I got all that figured out. So if I want to do that, I just need some information. Right. So b- before we close out this podcast, Dan, I, I think I would like to kind of just ask you a question and this could go thousands of different ways. Um, I want you to imagine a loan originator that's listening to this podcast and um, maybe they've hired us to help them with lead acquisition and, 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 you know, CRM and infrastructure and coaching and consulting and all that. Maybe they haven't, right? Either way, I'm curious about one thing that you would advise, and it could be a mindset, a tip, uh, whatever, that you believe good market, bad market will help strengthen them and create a better moat around the business they're running. So you alluded to it earlier, and that is uh, randomness versus system. So one of the Hill laws of success, they Hill said it as organized effort. So most people that aren't hitting their goals, for most people, it's not because they're not putting in effort. It's because they're putting in disorganized effort. And by and large, the less randomness you have, now in everything, the way you manage your time, uh, the way you continue your education, in this business, the way you generate your leads, the process you put your leads through, the presentation you make, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The less randomness you have, the more success you have. So in the big leagues, for example, in sports, randomness Everybody tries to get rid of it. So down at the backyard football level, and in some cases, all the way into high school, in a few, all the way into college, the, the, um, the playbook is everybody go long. But when you get to the pro level, that ain't the playbook. Yeah you got a hell of a complicated playbook to learn and there's no randomness on this play that receiver is supposed to make his turn exactly 11 yards down the field and come back one and if he goes 13 and he does that about three times in a row and he's playing for belichick he ain't playing for belichick anymore He's traded because you are not going to get to the Super Bowl running random football. And it's true really in everything. 
I sold for, well, for nine years, I was on the number one seminar tour in America with really big audiences, 10,000, 15,000, 20, 25,000 people in basketball arenas. But even around that, for about 20 years, most of my speaking was on magnetic marketing, and it was done to sell a, a resource kit, the magnetic marketing system. Mm-hmm. So that speech was scripted, memorized, practiced, physically choreographed. Uh, you could wake me up in the middle of the night, give me three words anywhere in it, and I could start. Uh, the AV crew at the big events literally used to play the game of what time was I going to say this and make bets on it. And pretty much you could set your watch by where I was going to be and say what. That's great. Uh, the, the best in the business. There's a guy named Ernie Kessler, who's one of the best platform salespeople I ever saw. And you could set your watch in his presentation by when he picked up his glass of water and how he held it. Uh, um, and, and that's a pro. That's a real pro. And so you apply that to everything. And to the degree that you reduce randomness and replace it with system, replace it with process, then uh, your success results, income and otherwise, go up. You know, on that note, this is a topic of discussion sometimes for members and I, and that's uh, um, something I've come to terms with is not as normal as I thought or wish it is. But I'm curious about your opinion. Uh, How do you feel about salespeople that either don't have a script or have one and sometimes use it? I think they're amateurs. I mean, I think they're fools. Um, um, Yul Brenner did The King and I uh, on Broadway. He holds the record for the most number of Broadway performances, I think, to this day. He did not, every fourth or fifth time, do it differently. Mm. He might have wanted to. He might have been bored with it. But he was a pro. Mm -hmm. And so if you want, so you better hope if that's what you do as a sales professional, you better hope that's not what say your heart surgeon professional does. Um, And on the day you're getting a heart operation, that's his spontaneity day. And that's the day he doesn't want to stick to the script. Uh, you You better hope your pilot on United Airlines, but does not every once in a while want to just turn the navigation system off and see what the hell, where we land right before we run out of gas. Uh, uh, You better hope, okay? And so I just think it's idiotic. Um, And no, no professional comedian does it. No professional performer does it. Well, hope has been one of your favorite presidential campaigns, isn't that right? Huh? Isn't that part of the the Obama campaign? Oh, look, uh, Obama was a very good candidate. Yeah, wasn't in my opinion a very good president. I wish we hadn't elected him, but no, no, no. Obama was a very good candidate. He's very smart, obviously, 
he has good sales. In, he can read a room. Mm. He has good sales instincts. And for the most part, the stump speech was refined and polished and then stuck to. Say, not, not Trump's kind of bad at staying totally on script, but he does what a lot of professional comedians do. He has polished pieces of shtick. Mm-hmm. And he he may wander off from this one for a few minutes, and then he comes back and connects with the next piece of shtick. So mm-hmm. a Trump rally is really now at this point, it's Trump's greatest hits. You know, that's <laughs> what it is. And it's 12 bumper stickers and, you know, uh, uh, Mary, we want to watch TV tonight, uh, but there's no wind. You know, I mean, I, I can almost do the pieces of shtick, right? And the pieces of shtick are almost word for word every single time. Um, uh, really bad candidates uh, who disappear early in the primary process often are really unscripted. And um, they, um, you know, they either get themselves in trouble or they're not particularly effective. Mm-hmm. See, there. Look, if you're if you make a sales presentation, or you deliver a speech, or you have an inbound phone script, there's a way the phone is answered at the office. There is a best word. There is a most effective sentence. And once you find it, then by God, it ought to be used every single time unless you're running a split test against it somehow to try and now beat the winner. Right. But you can't let people, you or anybody else, just use whatever sentence you want whenever you want it. That's like dumb. Right? Yeah, you, you, when you were describing that about uh, uh, how you think people that don't use scripts are, are amateur, you <laughs> over the next few paragraphs, you use the word hope a lot. And it reminded me of the Obama poster. And that's why I brought that up. I was like, it might be an okay campaign strategy. It's a bad way to generate income. Oh, well, um, yeah. well, oh, it's not. Yeah, that's right. So, like, hope is an appealing idea. Yeah. Hope is not a strategy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and we have we have the record of an administration to prove it. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, hope is not at all useful as a governance strategy, whether for business or for government. Yeah, in in one of our recent uh, newsletters, in in uh, I think it was the April edition of the Ma- the Mortgage Maverick, um, we had actually talked about how you can you can have freedom of income or freedom of creative expression, but you you have to make a choice between the two because if you're not committed to the process. You can be as creative as you want, but you should probably go make art because it's not going to not going to do too well in the mortgage space, you know. Well, by the way, you won't do too well in the art space either. Okay, because the top paid artists are very uh, strategic and very formulaic mm-hmm. about what can I promote? Maybe what controversy can I create? What will people buy? Right, because essentially, art is bought because the artist 
has promoted himself and made himself known and people find him interesting or people believe that he's going to get even more famous. So the napkin I sketch that I pay a million dollars for today is going to be worth $5 million 10 years from now. Why? Because this guy is a promoter. You can go as we're doing this, this past Sunday night, 60 minutes um, had a segment. I think his name is Jeff Coons. The last name is Coons. He's made himself a very famous artist Mm -hmm. and he actually has a factory. He really doesn't do any of the art anymore. He comes up with the idea and then the factory makes four of them and they only have four and then they sell. Uh, He's best known for giant metal versions of balloon animals like you make for kids at a party. And he's become very controversial because is this art or isn't it, right? And because it's made at a factory instead of the artist actually making every piece, right? He's running it as a business. Uh, Thomas Kincaid was disliked by other artists making a lot less money and controversial for many of the same reasons. So the truth is they don't have uh, unfettered creative expression either. Um, Robert Parker, mystery novelist responsible for Spencer. So Parker made his money on Spencer novels. He occasionally indulged himself by writing a Western. Mm. He did not indulge himself by changing anything about Spencer. The Spencer novels are like to a formula. And you can sort of set your watch by the first time he's going to get hit over the head by somebody in the dark during the course of the story, right? So even artists don't actually have, they have to make that same choice. Right. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I I just, I forgot about it until now, but um, I read, uh, there's a book that came out recently called 10X is Easier and 2X Phenomenal Read, Benjamin Hardy and uh, Dan Sullivan. Um, And uh, one of the examples he uses uh, about kind of creating an exponential, like, you know, development in your life uh, is the evolution of Andy Warhol and how, you know, he actually put out more pieces than any other artist successfully of all time. And he did that not because he did it by himself. He had a factory, like you said, he actually had, I think it was called the factory was the name of his kind of co-working space. And uh, he had dozens of artists that he would kind of start the concept. They'd do the next 80% and he'd come through and done, you know, and it's like, and, and uh, yeah, that's a good, good point. Yeah. Even artists have to deal with that. Well, Dan, this has been a phenomenal podcast episode. I, I there's so much for our audience to get from this. Uh, uh, I'm very excited to, to, to hear about the, the effect it has on people. Um, I, are you, are you cool if I do a, a quick plug for you? Yeah, sure. Cool. Dan has written uh, 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 over a dozen books through the no BS series. If you, if you haven't checked those out, huh? 36. 36 to be 36. Oh, geez. Okay. To be My precise. Three oh, dozen. No, it's over a, dozen. <laughs> <laughs> um, a dozen's an accomplishment. Three dozen's just wonderful. Uh, so he's got a lot of great books. Um, I've read the majority of them, uh, a, a few of them multiple times. Um, he has some of my fa- favorite marketing and business uh, uh, trainings 
you've been a, a business strategist uh, uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a direct response advertiser and copywriter for how long now? Well, the first time I got paid for it uh, was 1975. There you go. I mean, there's there's some tenure there. So um, that's that's a good 48, 49 years. Um, so he, he knows some stuff. Um, I would strongly recommend checking out his books. I'll actually make sure to drop a link uh, in, in the podcast and uh, this video uh, to that. But more importantly, um, I myself have been a diamond member for years in his program, uh, which is an, a phenomenal program where it, it's, it, in my opinion, underpriced. And you have access to dozens of amazing trainings that he's put together throughout those 48 years. Um, and uh, most of them are timelessly powerful. So I'm going to drop a link to that as well. I want you guys to check that out because it's, it's uh, I know as a marketer and a business strategist myself, it's transformed my life. And I feel like I've uh, uh, turned decades into days just through uh, consuming and, and, and implementing that content. So we'll drop a link to that. If you want to learn more about Dan, uh, uh, you'll make, I'll give you access to the, to the books and then also um, some of his most powerful courses and the newsletter which is that, uh, uh, you know, we definitely pulled some inspiration from the No BS newsletter for our Mortgage Maverick. Um, it's been great. And there's even some newsletter trainings in the Diamond Portal. That's just, they're awesome. So, um, Dan, thank you so much for joining us for the Lensetter Show. Um, thank I'm you. so grateful. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. Awesome. Take care, guys.